Would you please be seated? I'm going to be reading God's Word in a moment, but before we do that, it's, it's good and right for us to pray for His blessing. Lord in heaven, we are about to come to the Word, and in every way, it exceeds what our minds can comprehend. It, it goes beyond what our wills desire to know, and yet, by the work of your Holy Spirit in us, we can understand. Lord, we think of, of John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth, leaping in the presence of Jesus. Only the Spirit can do that, and only the Spirit can do this work in us. And so we plead, Holy Spirit, come and illumine the Word to us, that we would know it and understand it and love it. And Father, we pray for the youngest to the eldest in here. We pray for these little ones, that even some truth of the Scriptures would, would pervade their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would apply the truth at a level they can understand, and for all of us the same, Lord, that we would know you and desire to make you known. Father, we thank you for the voices of, of your prophets and the apostles who have spoken truth for us, and may we humbly say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Jude? Jude's only one chapter, uh, so it's a little bit hard to find. The easiest way to find it is to turn to the very back, to the book of Revelation, and then turn back a page from Revelation. It's the last book before Revelation. We started last week this verse-by-verse study of Jude by looking at verses 1 and 2. It's a wonderful greeting where we learn really what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has been called by the Holy Spirit, loved by the Father, and is kept for Christ Jesus. Now, just imagine how much it would transform our lives if you and I could just remember that all day long, every day, that no matter what else is going on in the world, no matter what else I am facing, the single most important truth is that I am called by the Holy Spirit, beloved by God, and being kept for Christ Jesus. I'm not going to get it tattooed between my eyes, but I need it tattooed between my eyes so that I won't forget it as I am so prone to do, and I suspect many of you are prone to to forget as well. Now, we would do well just to, to meditate more on those extraordinary truths, but a problem has arisen in the church to which Jude is writing, and he needs to address it. Look with me at God's Word, Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. How do churches collapse? I don't mean the edifice, I mean the internal. I I have had occasion this year to spend time in both Boston and New York, and I saw in those places churches that were hundreds of years old that began with great aspirations to be a gospel light. And, And yet, In almost every case, those churches have abandoned the gospel. How does that happen? How is it that the physical structure can remain, but the spiritual body, the spiritual life has been long gone? It's a question that we ought to ask. Is it an overnight thing? Does it just happen that the people were were once faithful, sound Christians, and they woke up one day and they said, you know what, I I think the Bible has passed its expiration date, so we need to, to make some changes around here. I doubt it. Satan rarely works so openly. Well, perhaps it was a matter of the outside culture forcing changes upon the church. You know, it's not that. In fact, Scripture and history both show us that the church is at its best 
when things out there are at their worst. In the book of Acts, you see on the one hand, Christians are being martyred and the church is growing in number. It's so much so, and that's been proven throughout history, so much so that the church father Tertullian and lived in the second and third century could say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, when, when Christians are paying the ultimate price for the sake of the gospel, it doesn't snuff out the light of the gospel. It actually causes it to, to glow more brightly, more brilliantly. So if it's not an overnight thing, if it's not something thrust upon us by the outside world, how does it happen? We ought to ask that question as a 10-year-old church that, that is zealous for the gospel. How does that happen? What do we need to be watchful against? Well, Jude tells us here, very simply, it's an inside job. It's an inside job. He says, what happens is ungodly people creep in and they teach something different than the scriptures teach and they live in a way contrary to how the scriptures teach us to live. But they only succeed in that if the church is complacent or indifferent about the faith. So people creep in, but the only way that they get away with teaching errant doctrine and, and wrong ways of living or if the church has its guard down, if the church is asleep about these things. And that's what the Spirit is teaching us here through Jude. It's not the external culture that destroys the church, but an internal collapse as the church ceases to contend for the faith, becomes lukewarm in its practice, and eventually abandons biblical Christianity. We have so many models throughout history of exactly that happening. And that's why Satan does not mind if there is a church on every corner that is filled with well-dressed religious people as long as they are lukewarm in their practice of Christianity, as long as they don't contend for the faith. And so Jude is writing to this church. We don't know where the church was to whom he was writing. We can assume it is directed as much to us by the Holy Spirit as it was to that original church. And Jude is sounding the alarm. He's saying, wake up, keep your eyes peeled. Do not neglect to see what is going on right in front of your eyes as these people creep in unnoticed and they corrupt, they pervert the grace of God. And they're doing it right under your nose. As I read through this passage again and again this week, there really arose four words that, that, that stuck out to me. Common contend, certain, and condemnation. It is so nice when the Holy Spirit does my alliteration for me, but it's common salvation, contend for the faith, certain people, and then condemnation. That's what we're going to look at today. So look first at this common salvation. Jude says here, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And then, of course, after that, he goes off to, to pull the alarm and say, we have a crisis here. But first he's saying, you know, I'm not really interested in being contentious. I'm not interested in talking about these things. What I really want to do with you is just revel in this amazing salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And you know, beloved, it really is amazing, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? To know that we are saved by the grace of God, we are loved by the Father, that, that, that Jesus Christ has died for us, and that the Holy Spirit is, is living within us. All of those things are extraordinary truths. They are life-changing truths. Isn't it great that as believers we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? You know, only Jesus can do that. And Jude says, you know, if I had my way, that's all we would talk about is this common salvation. Now, common doesn't mean there's anything commonplace about it. It's extraordinary. Rather, when he says common salvation, he's talking about this bond that they share, and that reinforces what we said last week. Jude was, as best we can tell, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He was Jesus' brother according to the flesh. He's also a leader in the early church, and so it'd be easy for us to think maybe he has some greater experience of salvation than I do. Sometimes people will say something like that to me. Oh, you're a pastor, so you have like a direct line with God, right? Well, in Jesus Christ, every believer does. There, there's not 
there's not this salvation for the spiritual superheroes and then salvation for the rest of us. It is a common salvation that we share. All who belong to Jesus share this. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. And so Judas saying, this is a common salvation. I'm not entitled to anything more than you are. And all I really want to do is talk about how extraordinary it is that God would send his son to die for wayward, rebellious people. Now, that's what he wants to talk about. But like so much of pastoral ministry, Something pops up that needs to be addressed. The problem was false teachers who are creeping into the church unnoticed. Nobody has perceived that they're there. And they're corrupting the church by what they teach and by how they live. Now, some people might say, you know, Jude's being pretty harsh here, isn't he? In fact, he's going to go on and talk about their condemnation. That's pretty offensive language in our world today. And so we might be, somebody, you might be out to think Jude must just be a zealot who thinks that anybody who doesn't fit into his small theological box is going to hell. You know, that does happen sometimes. There are people that are like that. Jude is not one of them. He didn't wake up looking to pick a fight. We, we see that a couple ways in, just in the first part of verse 3. We, can, we know he didn't wake up just ready to fight because of how he addresses the church. Look at his language beloved. You can hear the voice of a tender pastor speaking to his flock, my dear ones, you do not know how much I love you. And so he addresses them here, beloved. He loves the flock, and he says, that's exactly why I'm going to bring up this hard stuff, because I love you. If I didn't love you, I would pretend this wasn't going on. Second, we know Jude's not just looking for a fight, because he says, you know, I I wish I didn't have to bring this up. He didn't wake up and and say, what kind of trouble can I cause today? I am convinced, by the way, that that is what our culture desires from us, that we wake up to find out what we're supposed to be angry about today. So we go on the news or we go on social media. What am I supposed to be mad about today? Who are we going to cancel today? Well, the church is not immune to those things. The church can have, at times, faith vigilantes who just live for controversy, The sum total of their Christian life isn't to rejoice in their common salvation, but to nitpick and find problems, to to go on and on, not about the beauty of the gospel, but church politics or, or theological controversies, oftentimes taking a molehill and turning it into a mountain. These are the kind of people that we should avoid because they're more a reflection of cancel culture than they are Christian culture. That's not what Jude is like. We also know Jude's not like that because of what he says, you know, I'd rather talk about our common salvation. This is what I I really want to focus on. And I can tell you as a pastor, that's the sweet spot of ministry. When you have people who just want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is when ministry is overwhelmingly joyful. We talked about in, in, in Hebrews 13, Uh, Just a month or so ago, as we concluded Hebrews, Hebrews talks about being a joy to your leaders because they're going to give account for you one day. If you want to be a joy to Christian leaders, not just in this church, but wherever you are at any point in your life, if you want to be a joy to your leaders, all you have to do is just desire to know Jesus Christ, to love him and to serve him well. And Jude says, you know, I'd really love to focus on that good stuff, but he also knows there's a time that a pastor has to sound the alarm when the pastor has to guard the flock. You know, Paul told the Ephesian elders the same thing in Acts chapter 20. He says to them, guard the flock or shepherd the flock, but then he goes on to explain what's going to happen sometime is wolves will creep in with the intent of leading the sheep astray. And so the focus of the letter shifts from common salvation to this urgent call to contend for the faith. That's the second thing I want you to see is what it is to contend. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Now, that, that word appealing, it, it has a broad use of ranges. At the end of the, the year, you'll get appeal letters from charities, and they're asking you, hey, will you, will you give some of your money to our charity before the end of the tax season? This is not that kind of appeal. It's 
weightier. It's in a sense, if I were to pull that fire alarm, because there was a, a fire going on behind me, if I were to pull that fire alarm, I would not say to you, guys, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to need you to slip out of here. I would call out, you need to leave. You are in great danger. And that's exactly what Jude is saying here. There is a great danger right now, and I appeal to you to deal with it. He knows that he's got to speak with some force because what he's going to ask them to do is going to require some real courage. It's going to require some real backbone. It's not going to be popular. Well, what is it? Contend for the faith. The root of that word contend in the Greek is the word agonizomai. You can hear the word in it, agonize. It's something that's going to demand everything you've got. It's going to stretch every fiber of muscle in your being. There's no such thing as casually contending. You don't sit back and contend for the faith. It requires exertion. The best illustration I can think of is imagine a racehorse that is coming around the final bend and the jockey is, is, is doing everything in his power to try to speed that horse along and the horse is neck and neck. And if you look at that horse and you look at its body, every fiber of its being is being exerted to win the race. That's that word, contend. Every fiber of your being needs to be invested in this. Well, what is it, Jude? If it's going to require that kind of energy from me, it better be, better be worth it. Jude says, contend for the faith. You and I are stewards of the Christian faith. We don't make it up as we go. It's not something that we are authoritative, uh, authorities over. It is entrusted to us. That's what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. He says, guard the good deposit. We are duty-bound by God to be good stewards of the faith who will pass it on intact to the next generation. We don't alter it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. But we are to contend for it. And the language here, he's not just saying, I'm going to need you to contend for a couple of hours on Thursday. He's saying here, for the rest of your life, you're going to have to exert this kind of energy, contending for the faith. You know, the, this call to guard against false teaching and to contend for the faith is not an isolated incident. In fact, you can pick up just about every New Testament epistle and in some way or another, it is correcting false teaching. Now, just think about that in our own context for a minute. If churches that, let's just say the Apostle Paul planted and Timothy pastored are subject to false teaching, don't you think ours might be as well? Don't you think we need to be on guard about these things? So this is not a one-and-done thing that Jude was saying to the church. It applies as much today for us to uh, contend for the faith that's been steward, that we've been made stewards of as well. Satan never rests, and so we can't either. And so God is telling us by the Holy Spirit through Jude, I want you to be greatly concerned for the future and health of the church. You know, his, his words are so important. He doesn't just say contend for faith. You know, sometimes people will say that. As long as people have faith, whatever it is, as long as they're sincere, that's all that matters. Jude doesn't say contend for faith. He says contend for the faith. He's saying, you know, doesn't, sincerity is not what matters because you can be sincere but sincerely wrong in your faith. What matters is the faith, this, this faith that has been passed down to us. Faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. See, by saying the faith, he's saying there is an objective core of Christian beliefs, an objective body of beliefs, of doctrines that make up Christianity. And when you start to add to or subtract those doctrines, you actually change it into something else. It ceases to be Christianity. And so Christianity as the faith 
is an objective body of beliefs that are true regardless of when we live, where we live, or what everyone else around us believes. We're to contend for that faith. That's why Jude calls it here not just the faith, but the faith that was once delivered, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered is what God has graciously in the scriptures, through the prophets, through the Lord Jesus, through the apostles, has delivered to us by the Holy Spirit using sinful men to perfectly write the word of God. I read an article yesterday uh, by somebody who had professed to be Christian, but they said, we cannot trust the word. God, yes, God inspired it perfectly, but sinful men messed it up, and therefore the Word of God is not trustworthy. That was part of what critics of the Scriptures did in the 70s and 80s. They would look at passages, and they would say, okay, if, if we really believe this is authentic Scripture— then we'll include it, but if we don't think so, then we'll exclude it. And they had a whole series of colors for whether they believed it was authentic or not. Friends, you and I do not have the capacity to keep what we like and throw out what we don't like in the Scriptures, because once we start to do that, it is not God who is God, it is we who are God. The faith here means what the Holy Spirit has given to us in the 66 books of the Bible, and it is unchanging. It says once for all delivered. In other words, there's not going to be a new delivery where Jesus says, you know what? That was for another day. Now we have a new Bible. It's much more culturally relevant. It was once for all delivered. It has no expiration date. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. This has been one of the great failures of the church in our world in recent years. You know, thinking if we can just round off some of Christianity's rough edges, if we can just take out sort of the embarrassing parts, then the world will really like what we're teaching and preaching. So let's, let's just make some tweaks here and there. Let's, let's change some things. Let's, let's change what it says about sexuality and gender. Let's change what it says about obedience. Let's change those things. If we can do that, then I bet the people will come flocking in. Well, history shows that doesn't work, at least not in the long run, but just look at the scriptures. If Jesus had desired to just preserve his own life and to reach lots of people, he certainly would have sugarcoated the message. It would have gone a lot better for him, at least in a worldly sense, would it not? If you just sugarcoat the message, you don't make anybody mad. Except God. Jesus proclaimed and lived out the faith that was once for all delivered because his purpose wasn't popularity, it was to redeem a people. For that reason, beloved, we are called to contend. We cannot say, you know, we, we, we like certain parts of the Bible, the parts about love and the parts about serving our neighbor and all that, but, you know, those embarrassing parts, the parts that, that are going to make the world think we're odd, we need to kind of get rid of those. When we do that, we blaspheme God by thinking we know more than he does, by thinking we can come up with a better plan than he did. We have to accept that if you are going to contend for the faith, beloved, you will displease the world. If your goal is to be liked, if the church's goal is simply to be liked by the world, then we must be prepared to compromise on anything at any time. If we're going to contend for the faith, we must be comfortable in our skin, ready to confront error and ungodliness as needed. For that to happen, you and I must be soundly rooted in the faith because this faith that we are called, in a sense, to uphold, that same faith must simultaneously be upholding us. And if my sense of identity is found in what the world thinks of me, if my sense of identity is found in the world saying, ah, you're on the right side of history now, 
now that you've gotten rid of all those, those Bible things, if my sense of identity is based on that rather than the fact that I am called by the Holy Spirit, beloved by the Father, kept for Christ Jesus, I will be willing to compromise at the first opportunity. But if my sense of identity is rooted in the gospel, in the faith, then that will sustain me and it will sustain you in the face of a world that is antagonistic towards us. The decline of the church really starts with a spiritual decline of individuals who would rather be right with the world than right with God. God has historically grown the church through men and women who were firmly rooted in the Christian faith. Al Mohler is really, in a lot of ways, a theological giant of our day. He's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a brilliant and, best I can tell, very godly man. When he took the reins at Southern Seminary, it was pretty much apostate. It had abandoned the faith. It's a wonder by God's work that Muller was hired there. But his first sermon was absolutely fascinating. He's preaching to a church world that says, if we, can just, if we can just be likable enough, if we can just have enough programs, if we can just tweak things enough, the world will, will really come to know Jesus. And Moeller's first sermon at Southern Seminary was entitled, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Don't just do something, stand there. In the face of a world that's, oh, maybe we can appeal to the, to the world through this and through this and through this, Mueller's saying all you have to do in this world is stand firm upon the Word of God. See, what the church needs in the world is not that we would come up with program after program after program that looks good to the world and keeps children entertained and all that stuff. What we need is to be confident in the Word of God that He will use the Word to build His church. When we think that we can come up with a better plan than God has, we blaspheme. So instead, what we must do is contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Well, third key word is certain. Certain people have crept in unnoticed can't help but think of the serpent in the garden, right? Just slithering along. These people are slithering in. They don't draw any attention to themselves, but who are they? We really don't know. We know in those days that one of the common things was itinerant preachers who would go from church to church, and they would say, I'd, I'd love to preach in this church. We've had people through the years come by and say, I'd love to teach Sunday school or preach. People that we've never met before say those sort of things. But it was much more common in the first century, so I think there's a good chance that these were itinerant preachers who started coming to the church and looking for positions of leadership, looking for opportunities to teach and to preach and those things. But whatever it was, they were, were wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false Christians. They're not true believers. Again, I want to make sure we understand we're moving beyond small theological differences here. Christians can disagree on small theological idiosyncrasies all the time. This is not about idiosyncrasies and theological quirks. This is about people who pretend to be Christians, but they're not. That's the certain people. And the danger is they're so insidious. They, they slither in, they creep in unnoticed. You know, false teachers never wear a name tag saying, hello, my name is false teacher. You'll probably never have anybody come up to you and say, Hey, I know everybody in this church really loves the Bible, but we're actually starting a group that has decided we're going to abandon the Bible, and we'd love for you to come join us. That's not how it works. That's not how Satan ordinarily works. He normally, and false teachers normally, just subtly slip in, and they subtly teach things that go against the teachings of Scripture. It'll, we talked about this already, but it'll look like this. You know, the Bible, the Bible really is a neat book. And I heard this all throughout my undergraduate career at, at Presbyterian College. The Bible really is a neat book. It's masterful in its artistry. It, it's a wonderful story. Now, it's not true. It contains some truth, but it's not 
true, they'd say things like this, you know, things have changed. We know more than they knew 2,000 years ago. We know more about science, about biology, about love. And with great subtlety, they undermine the very faith that you and I are called to contend for. How do we know? It'd be so nice, I think it was Spurgeon once that said, it would just be nice if everybody wore team uniforms to know if if they were on God's side or not. It would be wonderfully nice so we'd know who to stay away from. Well, Jude says, if you want to know, there's really two ways. One is you look at their doctrine. What do they believe? What do they teach? If it's contrary to the scriptures, then clearly they're false teachers. But he says there's another way that you know who these certain people are, and it's by looking at their life. He says they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. That word sensuality in Greek, it speaks of a broad range of of self-indulgences. It's not merely, I think we probably, most of us think of, of sexual sin. It's broader than that. It's selfish indulgence. And he's saying, here's what they do. They talk about grace, but they use grace as a justification for sin. They talk about gospel freedom, that you and I have been set free from sin to obey God, and they flip it around. And they say, now we're free to do whatever we want to do. That's what God's grace does. Jesus has been gracious to us, therefore, we can go and do whatever we want to do. And he says, Jude says, it leads to a life of sensuality. You know, Paul asked that, that question in Romans chapter 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he gives that firm answer, by no means. These people would say, yeah, why not? Why not, right? We're forgiven. It'll be okay. Let's just do it. If it feels good, do it. You'll be forgiven in the end. Jude says, do you know what they do when they do that? They actually become practical atheists. He says they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How are they doing that? It's with ungodly living They deny the divine authority of Jesus. When we sin, do you realize this? When we sin, we're saying, God, you will not be the authority over me. If you're a believer, hopefully, you're convicted of that and you repent when you sin. These people, they take pleasure in it. No, 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 God will not be the authority over me. I don't have to obey him. Why? Because I'm forgiven already. And Jude says they pervert, they twist grace. Do you realize that? That grace is not licensed to sin. Grace doesn't give us the right to say to God, you don't get to be God over me, I will do what I want to do. That actually flies in the face of grace. A Christian will never have any right to believe anything about God other than what the scriptures teach. And a Christian has no right to live in any way other than God commands us. You know, certainly we can think about the world out there and we can be so irritated with the world out there and how wicked they live. But the warning is really for us in here. We're the ones called to contend for the faith. And I hope you realize how serious this call is to you and me, beloved, because there are going to be days of great temptation for you and me when the world will call upon us to change our view of God in order to better align with the world's practices. There are going to be times in the future, if it hasn't already happened to you, where people are going to say to you, and maybe family members, it may be close friends, it may be employers, you're a Christian, you don't actually believe that gender's determined by biology, do you? You don't actually believe homosexuality is sin. You don't actually believe that the only way to, to God is through Jesus? And you, if you are going to contend for the faith, you're going to have to decide. 
Are you going to try to save yourself a lot of embarrassment and appease those people? Or are you going to say to them, yes, Jesus is my master, Jesus is my Lord? I, I don't know how you answer that question, by the way. When I have people say to, you, do you, to me, do you, do you really believe homosexuality is a sin? I'll say, it, honestly, it doesn't matter what I believe at all. What matters is what God has told us in his word. My opinion is actually completely irrelevant to that. The only thing that matters is what God has said. And if I say to them, you know what? I, and if I'm trying to save face, if I want to save myself embarrassment, you want to save yourself embarrassment, you say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. You're actually denying Jesus Christ. In a sense, we hear Joshua's call, choose this day whom you'll serve. Beloved, are you going to contend for the faith when you are cornered by friends and loved ones, when your job is on the line? Are you going to seek to please God or are you going to seek to please the world? Because guess what? You cannot do both at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. And if you try to save yourself from being embarrassed or being at odds with the world, you may for a moment save yourself from problems. But Jude wants you to understand if you do that, you're actually denying Jesus and you have a lot bigger problems. Look at verse 4. He says, these certain persons long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's the final word here, final key word, condemnation. You might think here, condemnation, Jude, really? I mean, they say they're Christians. Uh, chill out a little bit. You're sort of being overzealous. What's the big deal, Jude? The big deal is they may be fooling everyone, but they do not fool God. Long ago, they were designated for this. They may have crept in unnoticed, but they did not slip past God. He sees the hypocrisy and the error. He knows it all. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Jude would speak of condemnation. In fact, it's not just what they deserve for their false teaching. It's what they deserve for sin. And not just them, but, but us too. See, the stunning part of this, the shocking part of this passage is not that Jude warns about condemnation. It's the fact that anybody has salvation. It's not surprising that some are under condemnation. What's surprising is that some are under grace. It's astounding to me that God would show grace to any of us because all of us deserve this sort of condemnation that this passage talks about. There but for the grace of God go I. If God in his sovereignty had not called me to himself, set his love upon me, and was not presently keeping me for Christ Jesus, as we saw in verse 1, if that were not all true, I would be doing the exact same thing as they are. Robert Murray McShane, one of my heroes, died at age 29. He was a pastor in Scotland. He had this great line where he said, the seed of every possible sin lies hidden in my heart. I am capable of it all. Condemnation is not the shocking part of this passage. The shocking part is salvation, that there is grace, that any should be saved. As ugly as a word, uh, ugly of a word as condemnation may be in our world's eyes, if we leave out condemnation, we lose the awe that we ought to have for salvation that God would save people like us, that Jesus would take our sin upon himself. The condemnation I deserve, Jesus received. The life and the blessing that Jesus deserved, I receive. I can't explain why. Why he would love us in the way that he does so as to take our condemnation and, and take it upon himself but he does. He comes to us, and he saves us in our sins and from our sins. And the way that his grace is made manifest in us and through us is as he transforms us by the word of God and conforms us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. See, that was the problem with these false teachers, is they're not being transformed. They're continuing on in their sins, and they prove they're not believers 
those whom God has set His love upon, He sets free from the tyranny of sin in our lives. So the fact that these certain persons have used grace to actually justify sin shows they've never experienced grace at all, and they're still in condemnation. Friends, this is the faith for which we are to contend. It is the only way by which a man may be saved. But it's astounding that there is any way by which we may be saved at all. It's not just a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and death. Contending for the faith is not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. But this life is not so much about our ease or our comfort. It's about being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us in the gospel. And our duty is not to please the relativistic, fickle, pluralistic crowds. Our duty is to be faithful to Jesus, to know the truth, to love the truth, and to contend for the truth. For the sake of your church family today and for generations untold here in Beaufort, I got to thinking this week about other warnings in the Scriptures, like the one Jude gives here, and the longest protracted warning is in Revelation 1 through 3, where Jesus addresses each of the seven churches of Asia Minor. These were churches planted by the apostles. And in each case, Jesus warned against complacency and urged them in different ways to contend earnestly for the faith. And so I got to wondering, where are they now? Where are those seven churches now? What came of them? And so I did some research, and I'll, I want to work through those seven churches very quickly. I'll start with Smyrna, because Smyrna fared the best. It's now the city of Izmir in Turkey, a city of about four and a half million people. And among them, there are about 500 believers. Now, that's a pitiful number in one sense, but when you hear the rest, it's actually extraordinary. What about Ephesus? It's a town called Selchuk. It's a Muslim town, as is 99% of Turkey. And despite their great Christian heritage, the most you'll find is one small Protestant church of former Muslim believers that gather in Selchuk. Pergamum, now Bergama, Few known believers and no churches. Thyatira, now Akasar. There's no church in Akasar and no known believers. Sardis, now it's known as Sart. No known Christians today. Philadelphia. Love for brother is what the name meant. Now the name is Allah Sahir, which means city of Allah. There's no record of believers there. Laodicea is a city now known as Denizli. Half a million people, only a handful of believers. How did that happen? Slow, subtle, insidious decline. They didn't contend for the faith. And in some of those towns... There has not been a gospel witness for more than a thousand years. Thankful that not all legacies in that way. We are spiritual heirs of the reformers, of the Puritans. We're also, in a sense, national heirs of the Puritans who, despite all their imperfections, brought the faith to America. We are a church plant of the independent Presbyterian Church of Savannah who has contended for the faith in Savannah for over 250 years. We are heirs of a core group of people in our community who saw that the churches they belonged to no longer were contending for the faith that they had departed. And so these people planted First Scots as their way of contending for the faith. This is the trust that has been given to us. What will be the legacy of this church and the gospel in Beaufort for generations to come? Only the Lord ultimately knows that. But this we know. 
we must contend not for numbers, not to be approved of by this world, but for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jesus, in his words in, in Revelation to the church at Ephesus, he says, you have lost your first love. You and I must labor personally and daily for Jesus to be our first love because that which we do not cherish, we will not contend for. As we devote ourselves more and more to Christ than to the world, then and only then will we contend for the faith. How do we apply this text? Three applications. First, in order to contend for the faith, we must know the faith well. We must understand what we actually believe. In other words, theology is really, really important. And that may sound kind of funny to some of y'all because we actually live in probably what is verifiably the least theologically minded culture in church history. We hear things like this all the time. You know, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. No creed but Christ. It all sounds good. Sometimes people will say doctrine divides. You know, Jude would actually say, you're exactly right. It divides true believers from false teachers. That's what we're called to do. As a church, you must know the right doctrines that the Scriptures teach because you won't be able to spot the wrong doctrines if you can't. Do you know how... Many branches of law enforcement learn to detect counterfeit money. You know, counterfeiters every day are are updating the technology and trying new things. So there's no way that you could have a book of every fake dollar bill that's out there. So the way that they learn what's fake is by examining and studying and knowing the real thing. Beloved, how do you learn to guard against false teaching? It's a great question. Most believers don't, the issue's not right from wrong, it's right from almost right. How do you guard against things that sound right but are not right? You must know right teaching. This is why we as a church care so much about, about doctrine. We want to prepare you to contend for the faith by teaching you in-depthly that faith once delivered to the saints. That applies to our children as well. One result of being the least theologically minded people in the history of the church is that we think all we need to do to keep children in the faith is entertain them, give them them, uh, games and toys and silly stuff for an hour or two a week and they'll stay in the faith. You know, what they need is not to be entertained. There is endless entertainment at their fingertips. What children need is to be discipled to be discipled in the faith. This world is seeking to disciple them in secular humanism and in ways of sin. If we do not disciple our children, we should not imagine that we are actually contending for the faith. Second, we need to learn to contend without being contentious. Do you know what a contentious person is? It's it's somebody who just complains or whines or, or picks a fight about everything. It's somebody who thinks that their spiritual gift is to be critical. I want you to know, and we often use the term of devil's advocate, and I understand that. The devil doesn't need any more advocates. He has plenty. We need to be a people who are zealous for truth, but we have to do so in a way that is consistent with the Christian faith. Oftentimes in the church, we have people that are good at being right, but not good at being kind. We don't trade off one fruit of the Spirit for another. We contend without being contentious. We contend in a spirit of humility and grace and charity befitting of a Christian. Or another way to say it is we speak truth, but we speak truth with a Christian accent. Third, Application, be careful not to allow experience to replace absolutes. 
There's a such thing as absolute truth. It's what's revealed to us in Scripture. It is true no matter what people's experience has been or what they think about it. Even if 100% of the world voted against what's written in the Scripture, it is still absolute truth. One of the ways that Satan has gained a lot of ground in recent years is to, to replace absolutes with experience. See, we no longer ask the question, is it true? We ask the question, does it make you happy? I, I listened to a debate over the issue of homosexuality uh, a couple of years ago. And the issue, that, the way it was debated, there were a handful of men that were very theologically minded and they spoke with great clarity. And there were other men who only talked about, in anecdotes, their experiences and their struggles of being a same-sex Christian. And many people were far more compelled by the stories than they were the absolute truth that the theologians presented. You know, that sounds extreme, but I see it a lot with Christians who through the years were once firm on a biblical issue, a moral issue, but as their loved ones, especially their children, turn away from the faith, many once firm believers depart from the faith that was once for all delivered. It's a mantra of our age to live your truth. Experience is king. No, it's not. Friends, you have no truth. God has all truth, and we must live his truth. And what God says is true is true regardless of our experience of it. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for the word and how it teaches and corrects and reproves and trains us for righteousness. Why? So that we may contend for the faith. Not the faith as our world wants to hear it, but the faith as, as you have spoken it in the Scriptures. We pray that you would give us courage and that those things that, that Jude talked to us about last week, our identity in Christ, I pray that those things would be so firmly settled in our hearts that we would not feel the need to win the world's approval. That, that we would not seek the world's applause. That we would not seek to be loved by the world. The only way we